0: This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate.
1: This week on meetin 3, we're talking about comfort food as we explore its history, meaning, and different interpretations from around the world. Donburi is just a simple, casual dish, but it's packed with the history. Somebody might have their comfort food be something that they remember eating at their friend's house, but
2: they would never have at their own home. Consuming foods that were eaten then can bring back some of those feelings from, from those times.
1: It's about creating these little breaks and moments during the day where you kind of feel present. Tune in to Meet and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto, who is in Long Island doing her thing. It's just me doing the intro today again. But you know what? I think we're gonna get back to doing the intro together soon enough. But for today you're stuck with just me, folks um so today on the show we have a very interesting and kind of unique episode which was so lovely and really fun and interesting um we had on film critic susanna gruder and susanna asked uh, us to watch three films that she thought represented food and grief in film and so bobby and i and susanna all watched the films And they were all so interesting and so different and so beautiful and intricate and gorgeous. And uh, truly, it was just such an exciting, fun, and good distraction from an otherwise extremely stressful week. (laughs) Um, But, you know, as we mentioned in the episode, we often don't talk about grief in our society and culture. And film is one of the only times in art, I guess, in general and literature um, where we really address grief. And so, yeah, these the films that she picked, that Susanna picked were great. And uh, it was just a, a wonderful conversation. Um. So as always, we are sending our love and and good thoughts and vibes to everybody listening um, this past week, talk about grief and just feelings of trauma and release and strife and all of it. So um this week as always and in extra heaping, helping, um sending our our good thoughts to everyone. And uh we hope you enjoy this episode of Susanna. Susanna, thank you so much. Again, this was just such a really necessary welcome, fun relief uh, and we hope it feels like that for you guys too So enjoy this episode and please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe the show if you like it And write us write us an email at processing at heritageradionetwork.org um, Great way to support the show by rating, review and subscribing um, And as always you can support Heritage Radio Network, uh, member supported radio Okay, love you guys, thanks so much, enjoy our chat with Susanna So we are here with our guest this week, Susanna Gruder. Hello,
1: Susanna. What's up? Hi, guys. How are you? Thanks so much for having me.
3: Yeah, it's a pleasure. So as we were just discussing before we started the show, this is a very intense day. We're having a optimistic lean, but it's still, as we are recording, we are basically, could potentially in this hour find out if uh, Donald Trump has been permanently fired. So it's a... Yeah. Uh, but this is welcome relief. We get to talk about movies today.
1: Yeah, let's just forget what's happening yeah. for an hour and <laughs> talk about something completely different. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good.
3: So Susanna, what do you, what, can you tell our, our uh, audience a little bit about what you do? And
1: Yeah, um, so I'm a freelance writer and film critic, um, and I've been doing that for a few years. Um, I started Just writing a newsletter um, sort of about like my moods and how they related to the movies that I was watching and um, eventually started writing for various publications and um, trying to do that in my life right now, along with a lot of other things, but... I love it.
3: Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And so today's show, guys, we wanted to talk to, we wanted to do a show today about food and grief in film. And that's why I reached out to Susanna because I know that she has an amazing knowledge of film and is a film critic and a wonderful writer. And, you know, we just kind of thought, uh, you know, I think it's a great thing to talk about anyway, but especially with the stress of what's going on, that it could be a nice thing to kind of have a break from maybe intense stories and, and hear about intense stories on, in film. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, first of all, what do you, We ask everybody this, and I know that you are a cook and a, like a baker. I know you bake a lot of bread, right?
1: Yeah, um, I've always liked baking. It's something that I, I grew up doing, and I was much more comfortable with that than cooking for a long time. Um, so maybe that's why I've sort of retreated into into the baking world this year. But mm-hmm. I've you know I've been doing the whole sourdough thing. Um, nice. I recently woke my starter up after a few months and she's, she's alive and kicking. So
3: incredible. So yeah, you can leave the starter in the fridge and you think it's like totally deaded, and then it can just come back to life.
1: Yeah. They're very resilient. So Amazing.
3: Mm, yeah. much like, much like human beings, right?
1: Honestly, the amount of times I've like compared my starter to like what's going on in my life or like my cat or like other living things is kind of ridiculous but it, yeah. there's a lot of metaphors there yeah <laughs>
3: So, you know, today we're talking about food and grief in film, and uh, what is, has this been something that you've kind of explored, like, before? I mean, obviously, as a film critic, I'm sure you've thought about grief in film. It's one of the biggest ways that we get to actually see grief and experience grief in life, since we're such a kind of death-denying culture. But I'm just curious to know, like, have you spent a lot of time kind of exploring this previously? Like, what's your what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I haven't specifically ever written about grief and film, but I think when I've gone over everything that I've that I've written or thought about or watched, like those themes are kind of just all over the place because every film is about some loss. sort of loss. Yeah, like of some any kind. any I mean, that's just whether or not it's explicitly stated that's what it's about and it's also about the ways that we cope in life and I mean food is just is all over so many films and and to think about why they're showing food is something that was really fun for me to do in in you know researching for this um because sometimes you you're just like oh that's a nice image of someone cooking but I'm like well why would they show that specifically what are they trying to say and it's like, it often says so much more than just like explicitly talking about the pain that you're going through. Like people communicate via food and it's so cool to see the ways that they do it on film. Oh, like, they, lo- they, love, they love each other through food. Yeah, yeah. or yeah. they show their love it, through food but not necessarily in other ways.
3: Right, as we saw in some of the films that we're going to talk about, um, yeah, I've always thought that was very interesting, too. Like, just the different filmmakers' use of food and and, and kind of exploring why that is. And I think, like, one reason is to, no, like, humanize characters in film. I mean, like, they're actually doing something that real people would do, bring it down to, like, a human level.
2: Mm-hmm. Relatable. Um, relatable. Too, a relatable right? yeah. To
3: make characters yeah. relatable, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think it's... it's uh, the. The films you picked are really interesting. And then again, about where where I thought grief came in, I said this to begin with, but just like, we don't really talk about grief in a real way between each other. Some people do, of course. um, But I think generally as a society in America, we don't have this open conversation about grief, which is like why we Bobby and I decided to start this show, but yet when you watch movies like you were just saying before, in film, like it's one of the only places it can be depicted, and in fact, it's a common, you know, arc in basically every film in the in the hero's journey or the story circle of film, um, of you know, loss being something that each character in some way has to grapple with. So, yeah, you suggested three amazing films for us to talk about this week. Do you want to get started? Just pick whichever one you want to talk about first.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I feel like for me, the, the meatiest one, um, you know, in a lot of ways is probably Jean Dillman. Um, just cause I mean, it's just, it's such like a, a towering film and in, in my life and in so many people's lives, it's kind of like this cinematic, like Holy grail, um, that I hadn't really revisited since I was maybe, like, in my early 20s. Um, but had seen, like, having seen that and then having, like, made film such a bigger part of my life in the past 10 years, like, have just seen it throughout so many other films. Like, it's so influential because um, it's so bold and different. And, and I think it, it crushes a lot of taboos in in the same way that, you know, talking about grief does. It's, like, how... Are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to show a woman, you know, like, uh, grinding or massaging meat for like seven minutes? Is that, but why not? Yeah. You know, like this is actually what happens. This is actually what totally. life is. So, yeah. Can actually. you tell
2: us why you think the movie was bold and different? What, how would you describe that? Yeah. Why
1: well, you I'll, think that- yeah well, I'll-, I'll give a little just like summary. Um, it's, you know, uh, Jean Dielman, 23, K de Commerce, uh, Brussels 1080, I think is the full title, uh, mm-hmm. which is the address of the main character. Jean Dielman, played by Delphine Serig. Um, it's a Chantal Ackerman directed it in 1975. And she was 25 at the time, which is crazy. Wow. I didn't realize yeah. that.
3: That's yeah. Amazing.
1: So she's a total autodidactic prodigy. Um, mm. And it's it's a nearly three hour film that just sort of charts three days in the life of a housewife in Brussels. Um, she's actually a widow. Um, so it has these long durational shots of her, mostly in her kitchen, um, preparing food for herself or for her son who comes by after school and eats and basically goes to sleep. And her life is, is, built around these routines and these rituals essentially um the way so many women's lives are and it has it shows it was one of the first films to to really show life in real time and it's not even real time it's like it feels like it because on on film like five minutes a five minute shot feels like five hours forever yeah so it's it's not even it's not even that but it's it's just about the the work that that women do and that's unseen and that people take for granted and um, largely having to do with food preparation and cleanup yeah. and it's it's not even really about eating so much. it's about no. like the before and the after and and the process of of actually working with your hands to make things and it's about like, her making beds and her cleaning and her running her errands and and eventually she sort of becomes to she starts to unravel a little bit like these um she's ac- she's also uh sort of a part-time prostitute which we see early on so it's not really a spoiler but she you know she doesn't have any other source of income she's she's a widow so it's just another domestic task that she does and um after it- seeing Oh, go ahead.
2: Yeah. I was just about to say, and the other thing that's hidden, because it's it's hit the task that she a woman does all day is hidden. Her grief is hidden, and the fact that she's a a, a prostitute worker. is hidden.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we, it's it's also slowly revealed that she hasn't maybe fully processed the loss of her husband. Um, she still wears her wedding ring. She still shines his shoes, um, and clearly the carrying out of these tasks is, is her way of coping. And when she, something happens and she is thrown off and she, her routine kind of completely falls apart and she loses it a little bit. And it's about how much I think those little, those rituals keep us held together when we're, when we're going through grief or stress or what have you.
3: Absolutely. Well, I really thought with the food preparation, like the long, particularly, I mean, the whole film, but particularly with the food preparation scenes, you could, I really felt like you could feel her grief like seeping out of her. Like it felt like it was seeping out all of the cracks of this life that she was trying to keep very tightly together. So I, I really related yeah. to it in a lot of ways too, especially lately since the pandemic has happened. And, you know, I'm a chef, but I normally don't cook a lot at home, but now I am like preparing every meal at home and plus working on projects and stuff, which is fun. And Cooking for work, but I feel myself in these routines and I I can feel that I can really relate to that in some way. When I do feel pain or grief, I feel it almost seeping through me in the like mundane routines. I had an interesting thing I just wanted to run by you, which was that this film reminded me in a very kind of I don't know, abstract way, but I think the themes were similar to two other films, which are different, but not necessarily the food part, but the the monotony and the routine driving someone to the brink and also the filmmaking style in A Woman, in a woman Under the Influence. I thought it had a oh, very yeah. similar tone. And mm-hmm. then also, in a way, to American Psycho, which yeah, really, like, I kind of drew a parallel in that between just the complete kind of, you know, droning on of daily tasks and then also when you're thrown off your task. I mean, I think we don't want to spoil the end of, um, of the <laughs> film for anyone who hasn't seen it because the end is incredible. But, you know... In a similar, obviously, in American Psycho, the the brutality was imagined, but um, I just thought that was interesting.
1: Um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. These little the the worlds that we create for ourselves to sort of maintain order, um, mm-hmm. and and how delicate that balance is, um, and like cooking is is good is can be you know a good thing for when you're yeah like I have been we've all been cooking so much more this year. Um, but it also is a way of ignoring a lot of the pain. Exactly, I
2: I have a comment on that. You know, you watch her move so deliberately and each step is so carefully done and everything. And I thought to myself at one moment that, oh, she's being mindful, but actually it's the opposite. She was very mindless, but it's so close. Because I often recommend to clients um, when they've had a, a tragedy or loss or a trauma that it's important to create rituals and to move very slowly, mindfully through them because it grounds you. But for her, she was doing that mindlessly, right? Absolutely. What do you think about that? Do you agree
1: with that? A- absolutely. And yeah. and I mean, it's, it's interesting because a lot of um, Chantal Ackerman's Filmography is, is based on her relationship with her mother um, and and her, her ancestors. And, you know, she's uh, she her mom was a Holocaust survivor um, from Poland. And um, and and a lot of the rituals that, that she's showing are are based on like the rituals of Jewish life and that she saw her her mom and her aunts carry out. And she tried to explain, there's there's a really cool, like, behind-the-scenes documentary of, of Chantal talking to Delphine Surig, who's like this, you know, stage actress, and, and is that, like, why is she doing these things? I want to know why she only spends 25, why she spends 25 seconds doing this, why she brushes her hair at this point, why she does this. And And Chantal's like, I don't know, like, there's no... There's no reason. There's no psychology. There's nothing in her mind that that there's no explanation, and and it's so hard for for Serig to like understand that. But but Chantelle's like, I just this is in my blood. Like I've seen my family doing this my entire life, and I can't explain why they do this. And it's it's that yeah, it's that mindlessness, that sort of yeah. Yeah. No, it's
2: interesting. Um, Some of the listeners know this, but my mom was a Holocaust survivor. And I've also worked with Holocaust survivors in groups. And one of the things that I've learned is that, first of all, there's multiple layers of complicated grief. And you could see that in the main character. You could see that it, it, you, you would think that it was just the loss of her husband, but it was so much deeper than that. You know, mm-hmm. everything about the household was, like Zara was saying, it was dripping grief in everything that she did. Um, and also there was such a lack of joy. It was an unbelievable lack of joy and passion until she began to crack. And then you saw something different.
1: Right. She has a, um, she says that um, talking about the Holocaust survivors in her life, she's saying if they sought to forget a past about which they had nothing to say, I shot films about that nothing.
2: Mm.
3: Wow. Mm.
1: Very interesting. And I think
3: you know, I I saw some of grandma's, uh, my grandma, Bobby's mom has passed away maybe what, like 10 years ago now? Oh, eight years ago? Yes, eight years ago. But in her memory, I saw a lot of similarities now that you mentioned that it's just like popping up. There's something in like the orderliness of if you keep everything arranged to a certain effect that you can stave off other kind of bad feelings from coming in by keeping order and to an effect, that's true, but it will find its way out as we learn later in the film. And you know i just without trying to ruin the movie for anyone who's not seen it but um it was very interesting to me how she found her joy in in a very in a in release right and so maybe it didn't necessarily come out in a in a healthy way but i think it was just um kind of a real testament to how release is necessary
1: right for yeah. dealing with pain and towards the end of the film she also like starts to tell her story a little bit, like at when she's in the scene and the and she's looking for the button for her son's coat and she goes into the um you know seamstress's shop and just like unprovoked just starts talking about her history a little bit and her son and and these things that up until now we really don't know much about her life she she keeps everything secret and yeah and um. She listens to other people's stories, you know, tacitly, and she um, she communicates, like, you, the only way you know how she's feeling is, like, how she is in the kitchen. Like, you know she's having a bad day when she, like, keep, makes the coffee, like, three times. She, she gets she,
2: frazzled. She gets yeah. frazzled at that point. You know what I found interesting? My husband actually pointed this out, that in the beginning of the movie, which is, by the way, the first hour and a half, two hours, um, <laughs> yeah. She's constantly busy. She never, ever sits down. And when she yeah. starts to unravel, that's when we realized she started to be, all of a sudden she was sitting and you could see she was thinking about something, thoughtful about something. And that's when she began to unravel. So I thought that was an totally. interesting. Her
1: point. day is planned out to the second. And that's actually like people say, it's like, oh, this is such a boring movie. And I'm like, actually, it's it's incredibly busy. Like there's never a point. It's sort of like, how I feel lately. I'm like, I'm at home all day, but I feel like I'm constantly like the minute I sit down, I'm like, Oh, I should go like get some more water or I should clean this up or something. It's like your day is constantly filled with these little things. You don't have a second to, to relax. But what happens is she, her routine gets disrupted when she wakes up an hour early and she has an hour to kill in her day. And she, and that's when that, that those moments of just sitting and she she's so anxious in those moments of just doing, doing nothing. It's so painful to watch.
2: And then I think without telling the story, I think to me, one of the turning points was the conversation with her son, who never says anything. He never comments about the food. He never says anything. Very. The two of them are so quiet when he talks about his discussion with his friend about yeah. sex. That was so very powerful. I mean, that was a powerful scene. But I don't want to tell what that was because that yeah. really has a lot to do with the story. But amazing, yeah. but that was
3: one very interesting take. I mean, the films you picked were up were all amazing, but also an amazing collection of films to discuss because they were all so different from one another in discussing the same topic. Right. So this was definitely such a look at like repression of grief and buttoning up. Wouldn't just which to some effect there was a little bit of that in each one. Um, but yeah. definitely like such what the 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 spectrum of repression to full-blown just like (laughs) no the opposite
1: (laughs) yeah really and i and i think it's interesting like to think about um i mean just sort of comparing it to one of the other films that um we wanted to talk about like um the space in the film like her kitchen is is very um like sequestered from the rest of the house and it's sort of like I think about this all the time. I'm like, I hate not open plan kitchens. Like I need my kitchen to be like connected to the living room so that I can talk to people when I'm cooking. And like, I like that whole, I feel very strange having it like, you know, like a galley kitchen or something, but clearly that's her safe space and yeah. her life is built on walking back and forth. And like, it's it's sort of signifies the compartmentalization of like, these feelings in her life ver- versus like the kitchen and still walking and the, 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 the things that go on and the community that is formed there is, is such a contrast.
3: Totally. So let's talk about still walking because that was such a beautiful film. I loved it. I know Bobby, you've mentioned that you loved it as well, but yeah, let's, let's talk about that.
1: Yeah. So, so I, 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 I wanted to talk about a, a, uh, Hirokazu Koreita film because uh, all of his, his Japanese director all, all of the films of his that I've seen are so centered on food and and the ways that it um, brings people together and also like is a, a sort of it's it can be a point of stress like scarcity of food um, and and this this film is just so um, centered on on food and it's 2008 um, the story of a family that gets together to mark the anniversary of the death of their son and brother named Junpei. He's never, never seen, maybe a photo of him. Um, it takes place over the course of 24 hours basically. Um, and he was pretty much the favorite child. It's pretty clear. Um, and he left a big hole and it is sort of, not explicitly, sometimes explicitly, but mostly just passive-aggressively communicated. Um, and the family is not necessarily great at expressing love. Um, it's a lot of criticism and a lot of a lot of hurt. I think that that transpires between them. And um, except for when it comes to food, I feel like they just they're. That's how they show emotion, and that's how they show love, for better or for worse. Right. And the mom, who is
2: one of the most passive-aggressive of all, never stopped cooking, right? right. She never stopped. She was wonderful food. I feel like I oh, learned God so many techniques, her. and, you know, I'm just watching everything she did. Actually, the opening line, am I correct? You only hear, radishes are amazing. Mm-hmm. Isn't that how it starts? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Totally.
3: Yeah, it was really, it was really, really beautiful. And the food scenes were so rich and so gorgeous. And I was reading a lot about food and film the past couple days. And just there was, I forget what article I was reading, but some uh, writer was talking about how a lot of times you'll see just kind of a very unrealistic scene of food and a nuclear family sitting down for dinner. And they each take one bite of a carrot and a bite of meatloaf and then everybody leaves. And in this film, everyone was eating with such gusto, talking about humanizing the characters. I mean, these people really ate with how I think a lot of people eat, with like joy around food. And of course, some folks don't. But like the realistic nature of how people, you know, there was a scene when the patriarch of the family was like, really he got uncomfortable and started really eating fast like out of his bowl and I don't know I just thought it the food the food in this film and the eating not just the food the act of eating and enjoying eating was so beautiful and was such a op, uh, opposite of what we saw in the previous film
2: absolutely
1: yeah yeah it-
2: no, I, f- I found that f- for me, well, Zara knows more about my history, but um, I used to be a hospice social worker, and I would go into people's homes for about six years, and I would go in when somebody was dying, and it was a very intense time. I would always talk about food. It was my way to connect with people. You know, it was the one area. So it was the w- you couldn't start off by saying, oh, you know, mom is dying. It would be like, oh, I smell something cooking. And it's that way to connect um, and I even remember working with somebody, a family in a hospital once, and the woman did not speak. She was just completely horrified by her experience of being in, in a cancer ward and going to nuclear medicine. And I was a new social worker, and the only thing I could think of was to ask her, had, what did she remember about cooking when she was a child? And she remembered her grandmother you know baking cookies and she describes slowly very almost like the movies we've seen very slowly she describes the process of baking cookies so i think that again this movie was a way that they the family connected around grief but without ever talking about
1: it mhm yeah it's like it's, you know someone is like the grandfather will be yeah like sulking in his office and while well, everyone else is is cooking and you know we find out that he's he's angry that he he's he's angry about the way that his son died, um, and he's angry that his other son is not following in, in his footsteps to become a doctor like he is, and he's it's it's like a very traditional, you know, mindset. Um and he's sulking in his room and, and someone comes and is like, Food is ready, you know, like are you gonna come and in there's like some shots of him you can hear like the sizzling of the mm. Corn tempura. Oh that was so great. Oh my god. Which I I want right
3: now. It looks so delicious. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The way that he shoots food is like mouth watering and um totally. So it's like, you know, you can't just say like, Hey, stop being a jerk, you know, (laughs) come down. Mm -hmm. It's like Come and eat with us. Yeah,
3: well, the thing about this movie that I thought was really interesting was that obviously the the repression here was around being you know there was a lot of of, uh, the, of passive aggressive behavior from most of the people in the family in one way or another, um, and there was also basically aggressive behavior. I mean, so they invite the the person who died as a result of their... Uh, the person who lived as a result of their son passing away.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the son obviously had an accident. We're assuming, right? He had an accident and he tried to save somebody. Yeah, it
3: sounds and like that. The person okay. who lived. And so they invite him every year for the anniversary, too. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that while they're repressing... They're, like, having really repressed feelings around... <laughs> dealing with their grief in a kind of practical way. They're so open about um, dealing, they're really processing it openly and in a positive way around food. They're like, well, we can't really touch these certain feelings, but we can access it here, which I think happens a lot with people in the grieving process. And that's like, in a lot of ways, that's natural. And that might never change. We, we, as we grieve, we might never get to a point where we're we're solid on all fronts. You know, it might always kind of remain until we pass that like, this was what I could handle. And this is what I couldn't handle. And clearly they're expressing themselves through food. And I think like, I think also it's important to adjust our expectations as we grieve to be like, we might not always be good at doing everything. Maybe we'll keep our house clean and that's the best we can do. Or maybe we'll, you know, be really uh, boisterous and excited around food. And that will be the thing we can do. But, like, maybe we can never really get over our feelings of anger. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about about Still Walking, there was a scene in which the mother uh, of the family, the, the or the grandmother, the matriarch of the family, mm-hmm. was talking to her son, uh, the one who did not pass away, yeah. about her son Junpei who died. And they were talking about the the person that they invite every year who lived, who they basically blame for his death. And he was, the son was saying, why do we invite this guy every year? This seems cruel to him. And she was like, well, I basically want it to be cruel. And she said, not having someone to hate makes the pain twice as bad. Mm. and that really was like the the thing that really stuck with me most out of the film and it really stuck with me too because of, especially because of the political climate that went are right, right now i mean mm. i think people can definitely attach to that in their personal grief and loss with family members and friends but there is something about it just like tr- it just sent a signal to me that I'm like, wow, this is interesting because people are so hateful of each other right now. And is it really because we hate each other that much? Or is it because that having an enemy and having a way, place to focus your anger really helps like ignore other things that are going on? Right.
1: Totally. I don't Totally. Totally. Yeah. Especially when it feels like oh, we're voting against someone that we really hate right now and not yeah. necessarily out of love for someone else.
3: Exactly. A hundred percent.
2: Bringing it back to grief though, you know, there is a lot of anger in grief and I all, I call that the existential no. It's like this giant scream you can almost hear at any loss. No, I don't want it to be true. And so the anger runs through it. And with an accident, there is a lot of loss So this was a, a story about a family member that had an accident and was, you know, trying to help somebody else so that the anger really runs through, you know, the whole movie in so many different ways.
1: Right. So the, the grandmother is just so full of anger towards people who really haven't wronged her at all, like her husband's, her husband's new wife. I'm sorry, her son's new wife. She's just, like, sort of lodging casual insults at and clearly it's, it's her coping mechanism. But then she's like, she is so kind to the memory of her son, you know, when like, it's easy to do when they're not, when they're not alive, when they're not human, when they're, you know, she's idealizing him, of course, as we all do when someone disappears, someone who is important to you. And then she, and yeah, and there's denial in the, in the in the scene where she sees a butterfly and she thinks that it's her oh son wow. and she's so intense. gentle to this butterfly and like clearly so delusional and 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 it turns her into this completely different person this like kind hopeful loving woman
3: Totally. Well, that was a crack in her that we saw, right? Because she had spent the film being, you know, hard and also busy, just like Bobby had said, like busying herself, constantly cooking, really never taking off her apron, you know, being passive aggressive, having a lot of anger towards this other person who was responsible, she thought, for her son's death. And then all of a sudden, a butterfly flies in the house. And she was, it was just a little crack where the sun got in and she completely changed and, you know, saw this butterfly as her son that followed them home from the from the cemetery and it was really very incredible it was incredible it was, it was very beautiful moving. and actually yeah. very
2: common you know it's not so delusional because many many people search for signs they search for cardinals and butterflies and dimes and pennies and and it's such a meaningful way to continue the bond you know with it with the deceased person you know the other thing about this movie was the rituals you know i love rituals and i think rituals help us heal very much so so they not only had rituals around food but they had an altar set up where there was you know pictures and there was a beautiful bell that they rang I can't remember when they rang it but it was just a, a the sound you could feel the connection to the deceased person to the to the brother um, and then also the cemetery when they oh, they yeah. took a, a journey to the cemetery it wasn't just a trip they walked there this long walk and then they poured water on the on the grave yeah. so there was so much ritual that went on that was was um, the significant did loss.
3: Yeah, it was really beautiful. It was a great film. Highly recommend all these. And then the I, I guess we should move on to talking about our last film, which was personally for me, because I had lost my dad a couple of years ago, really intense and really, really, really incredible. Uh, Dick Johnson is dead, which is, it's not quite um, a documentary. You had mentioned in the article you wrote about it, I can't remember what you the word you used to describe what this film uh, filmmaking style is.
1: Um, I I I might have said autobiographical documentary. Auto, you said autofiction. Oh, autofiction. Auto fiction. Yes. Yeah yeah. 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 So it it it's it's somewhat based in reality and somewhat based in fantasy, um, which we all are in our lives, <laughs> and it it kind of is is more real for that um, for me and and maybe for you as well. Um, so yeah, this, this film came out this year. Um, it's super, super new. It's on Netflix. Um, and it's, um, it's directed by, uh, Kristen Johnson, who is, um, she's a documentary filmmaker. She's a documentary cinematographer, um, has been for decades, um, and is behind a lot of the documentary films, um, that you've, Scene um probably um like citizen four et cetera um but she um she's moved into the the realm of autobiographical documentary um uh, her last film is is all these clips of of things that she shot and sort of telling the backstory of what it feels like to actually be behind the camera and have this strange relationship with what you're filming and and this film is even more personal. Um, it's about as personal as it gets. And, um, it's about her, her relationship with her father who is approaching the end of his life. Um, there's, there's some signs that he is on his way. Um, he has, he has signs of Alzheimer's and dementia and, you know, he's just, it's, it's becoming clear that he's not always going to be around in her life, which is something that she really is never thought she would I mean she knew on a rational level that one day he would die but it's something that she really hasn't been able to process so in an attempt to process it she decides to as a filmmaker kind of reenact um, scenes of him dying and in really outlandish ways like getting into accidents falling down the stairs having an air conditioner fall on his head, you know, um, and, and she actually films these things and she, she films his funeral even, and people attend. And, um, and so it's sort of a mixture of these fantastical moments with like moments of her just talking to her father about, um, about his death in a way that is like, I've never seen anything like it. It's just, it, it, it breaks that barrier. It breaks that taboo. Um, and I'm like, how does she do that? I mean, he's just such a, he's such a straightforward guy too. So they both are just like, let's, let's go there together. You know, he's totally. such a good sport. <laughs> he is a good right. sport.
3: And you know, I mean, this is uh, something that really got me from the film. She does talk to her dad in a very candid way. And, like, I used to talk to my dad like that too. When she said, I'm about my dad's my best friend and I can't picture losing him. Like, my dad was my best friend as well. And I lost him over a lengthy period of time. And there's a lot of things that reminded me so much. My dad died of cancer, but, you know, with Alzheimer's and dementia, you lose your your mind and your mental capacity, and with cancer and stuff, you lose your physical ability, and, but part of you is just not able to be there anymore, and so it was a different part, but in a lot of ways, I saw parallels, but her dad moves from Seattle to New York city to be with her because he can no longer live on his own. And they have this big conversation about like letting go. And like, he's like, so I have to let go of the car, huh? And like these really, I mean, that really got me. Um, But then he was accepting the letting go where I was like, my dad never fucking let go. And he wouldn't like, I asked him so many times to move, up to New York with me so I could feel like let we can enjoy the last amount of time together I don't have to worry about because I would fantasize about all these things all the time for real I'd be like oh how is he gonna accidentally die because he won't just like give up stuff um and then the dad Dick Johnson in the movie you know he or in the documentary he's like well the most important thing is that I could be with you I'll give all this beautiful house up to be with you and I was just like even now it just like it hits me in my throat. Cause my dad, my dad wouldn't do that. He would not do it. He wanted to stay in his home, which I understand, you know, it is difficult. And then something we don't talk about a lot in in, in our society, again, death denying culture is like the incredible pain for everyone involved in giving up your like autonomy and your independence at the end of your life and that like, you know, I took that very personally when my dad was dying, but actually in watching this movie while it made me sad that I didn't have the same situation as her where like my dad came to live with me, I was like, Oh, this wasn't, it kind of gave me the space to be like, this really wasn't about me. This is really, really, really hard for people. And it's not that he didn't want to come live with me. It's just that he didn't want to really, he wasn't ready to face that he was dying. And I think coming to live with me would have been, admitting that
1: but yeah yeah. everyone processes it differently and everyone has different personalities and and dick johnson has a very distinct personality
3: (laughs) yeah he was really amazing you wrote an article for reverse shot Yes. And um, you talk about and you you say Johnson takes a radical approach, meaning Kristen Johnson, uh, however, embracing a kind of immersion therapy to rid her of her phobia of Dick's passing, which I really like that sentence is really heavy and and important and very true, which like the phobia part for me. Right. I think like we do have when we know that a loved one is going to pass, there is a phobia associated with it. And just the kind of immersion therapy thing was I just I found it incredible in the film. I thought like your pointing out of that kind of point was really just very astute. Um
1: yeah. Yeah, cuz it 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 kind of works in in some cases. Like who knows if it will work for her. Um but it's it's brutal. No one wants to, you know, go and uh, you know, touch spiders and whatever. Like totally. but it it works like, you know, like facing your fears a lot of the time I feel like it does work, and and she's she's such a non. Uh, she's such an, a unique person that I feel like she just wants to go against what society tells her to do. Um, in terms of grief, she wants to go against what people might tell her to do. In terms of making a film, like this is just so unlike any film that has ever been made. You know, it has it has influences and traces of things in the past but it's kind of one of a kind yeah, yeah and it's it shocking really
2: is. It, is. it brings up when you talk about the um, emergence the opposite of that is resistance and so i always talk about this quote which is pain plus resistance equals suffering so pain is something we have to accept and the more we resist the more we suffer so this was really about this immersion um there's another technical word we use anticipatory grief and in a way exactly. we all do that you know, when we first learn that somebody's sick, we imagine ahead of time, you know, that what's it going to be like when this happens? Or what's it going to be like when they die? And we grieve a little bit along the way. That's really what happens. So this was like multifaceted anticipatory grief, you know, to yeah. create these um, imaginary deaths uh, for yeah. him.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, in terms of, she, I guess she kind of does the immersion therapy with the chocolate cake, too.
2: Tell us more about how you saw the chocolate cake, because that was a big feature.
1: Yeah, I mean, chocolate is, is a it, you know, features largely in the film. Um, he is, he's kind of like a, a child at heart, you know, this, this 80, he's like 84 to 86 throughout the course of the film, and he's, but he's really like, he's super childlike, he's, he's, he bonds a lot with his grandkids, and he has a huge sweet tooth. And loves, yeah, he just loves chocolate. So like, <laughs> you know, first of all, in there's there's some scenes that that Kirsten um, creates of him in heaven. So like she'll shoot his death, his brutal, bloody death, you know, and then it'll cut to a, a scene of of what she and he imagined heaven to be like, which is like, you know, Frida Kahlo is there and there's like a choir of angels and there's chocolate fountains that he can <laughs> dip his <laughs> finger in and lick the chocolate <laughs> off and like popcorn falling on him. And he's just like, he's in heaven quite yeah. literally. Yeah. And so then there's all, but there's also, um, like a long, uh, I think like a decade or so be- uh, before, actually maybe like 30 years, I think ago, he had a heart attack and it was right after he ate, uh, chocolate fudge cake that his friend made for him oh i didn't get that connection so there's a scene that um he goes back to visit with the friend and she makes the same cake for him and it's like kind of morbid and um but also kind of like it's sort of that's that's what you do at the end of your life right you you when you know that that it doesn't really matter anymore that you should have what you want, you know, or maybe it's him just being like, I can face this, like, you know, uh staring death in the face and saying, I'm going to eat the cake anyway, and I'll be fine. I mean, that's probably a combination of both of those things.
3: Yeah, totally. I I did a thing when my dad was dying. He was overweight. He had cancer, but he was also overweight, which I think was even more of the problem. And so for a long time, like I would go down there, it was like a 10 year span when he was diagnosed until he died and I'd go down and cook for him. And originally it was like, I was like making all this health food and like trying to, you know, make kale smoothies and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And which is ironic because kale could have killed him because he was on Coumadin. You <laughs> <He> can't have <laughs> like any, um, but anyway, so I was trying And then at a certain point, I don't want to say that I gave up, but I, I, it was my way of accepting was by making him macaroni and cheese and stuffed shells and banana bread and, you know, cookies and stuff like that. And it was interesting. I actually just wrote, I just wrote a short film about my dad Oh my God. And the last sandwich that I ever made for him, which was like in, which was my, both of our ways of accepting, because I used to go down there and cook these massive quantities of food and fill up a freezer and figure that, well, if I fill up the freezer, it takes 30, to 60 days to eat all the food in this freezer. That I will mean, so live for 30 to 60 days. And then finally asked for one sandwich and then he died. And so I wrote the film about that, but then about him coming back as a ghost after he dies and we have this like last five minutes. And it really remind I like to just do something that was totally fanciful. And it reminded me a lot of this film of being able to kind of, ch- the, how much when you lose someone you love, how much you desire to be able to just have that last five minutes, you know? Like the fantasy, the like, what would you do if they would just be alive for a little bit more time? And in my film, we go to the beach and splash around in the water and he's running and stuff but it was just beautiful in this film how she chose to do that while he was still alive and I thought that was really beautiful and like really special but really speaking to I think the desires of folks who lose loved ones of like just you know wanting to be able to create the narrative and kind of dictate it a little bit more because death and loss is such a loss of control, right? And when you become ill before you die with a terminal illness or something, that control is just for both, for everyone involved, for the person who's ill and for the loved ones, like you're just constantly chipping away at your sense of control. And it's so pain, that is like, that grief is very real. It's like before anyone's even gone, you know? And then when they're gone, it's just
2: like, well, fuck, now I don't, I can't control anything. Totally. Susanna, you wrote about that um, moment in the film towards the end. I think they 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 were looking at the rug, and yeah. you hear the you hear the words, "It's scary." She was telling her dad, "It's scary." That was beautiful. That was such a poignant moment because that's what your sayings are. It's just friggin' scary. This, you know, you you try to make the most of it, but it's a lot of it is so scary.
1: Yeah, exactly. And like even as she is fighting for control, she also is. Um, not negating his fear or his pain, um, in a way that I think is like such a beautiful act of love, um, that you can, you can give to someone like to, to say not to say it's going to be okay to say it's scary and I'm scared and I understand why you are. And like, that is, I thought that was like such a compassionate, moment between them and like explains like that I was like they really are like friends in, mm. in, in that way it,
2: it also points out the duality I always tell my clients my favorite word is and because we're so used to saying this is scary but and with the minute you put the word and it makes it all different because that movie was about that it was scary and it was joyous and they were completely present and they were letting go and it was just an amazing duality
3: Right. And chocolate cake is delicious and it could kill you. Right. (laughs) really, Like, you know, I love that, Mom. That's beautiful. And the other thing I want to just talk about, the chocolate for a minute, it's funny. I have uh, very close friends who have a dad who is in his 80s and suffering from pretty severe dementia at this point. And I know the dad. He's such a sweet, wonderful person. And uh, I love him. And he also will have the same reaction, almost exactly the same when he's eating chocolate and sweets and he loves it. And I think that like, you know, part of what happens when people are suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's is it does strip away a lot of your adult qualities little by little. And you're left with, like, these kind of primitive things of who you are as a person. A lot of people say you never really change after age five or seven. You're kind of the same person forever, right? In these kind of core ways, your personality has been solidified by, like, around age seven. And I think we see that in the way Dick Johnson and my friend's dad similarly enjoy what is, like, enjoy something very pure like chocolate and sweets in a very pure and childlike way, but that he's probably always had that exact same reaction to chocolate. You know what I mean? And it's like the one kind of core personality trait that's like unwavering even when all the rest of his, you know, adult personality traits are being stripped away. I thought it was very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. It was that was an amazing, amazing film. They all were yeah, it
2: beautiful. There was also another line in it and I don't remember when it happened, but there was the concept that we carry our parents in us. Mm. And I think that's so true. You know, whether we um got along with them, whether we didn't, no matter what aspects, they are a layer of us. They are a part of us. And um I can't remember when that happened does anybody remember that?
1: I don't remember, but i I, I mean I remember also like he talks about his own mother and like that really humanizes him and, and kind of makes you, makes you realize that he was a child at one point And, and that, you know, he, that his, his, he experienced this with his own mother. And like, it, it is this feeling of him being like a child in a old man's body and how we're, and how Kristen is also just like a child, it, like, with even though she's you know, a grown woman with kids of her own, she's she's still her dad, you know, yeah, absolutely.
3: There was one more line that I wanted to just quickly point out, which really like struck me, and I think it's so important in life in general, but especially we're all experiencing so much grief as a society, as a country, as a culture, as a world right now. And she said, we must divi- we must defiantly celebrate our brief moments of joy.
1: Oh my God, that, that was, that was one of the moments that I, I mean, there were several moments that I like broke down and I've, I've seen the movie like three times now and I just always, that, that was it. And that was, that came when she's talking about her mother's passing and I mean, did you want to talk about it or?
3: No, I mean, I just wanted to open up the conversation about it because it was so
1: powerful. It, it, it is. And it's, it was, it. Yeah, it's, it's like an act, it's almost like an act of, of protest or an act of, it's like a political act to, to actually, to be in the moment and to be, to recognize what, how lucky you are. And I think that's why I find documentaries so, so powerful because it's, and she says this, you know, he's like, why do you make documentaries? Why don't you make, you know, fiction films where the big bucks are? And she's like, I find real life is more interesting. Yeah, and it's it was like,
2: good.
1: yeah. And she's yeah. like, you know, I want to, I want to capture it. Like, I think do- documentary is a, a recognition of the, the, the beauty or the pain or the suffering or just whatever is existing right now and saying, I want to, this to last. I want to make a record of this. And, and her saying that like, I want to capture my father when he's still alive, as opposed to ignore Like, because filming something is a recognition that it's going to be gone. You're like, this isn't always going to be around, so I need to capture it, whether it's a photo right. or film. And totally. and for point. her to say, I'm going to do that, is is her saying that this isn't always going to be around. And I want to do this while I can. And I didn't do it with my mother. Mm-hmm which was really hard for her. She only got her at the end of her life when she was right. already gone.
2: Right. It was a, a living memorial. Yeah, totally. it really was.
3: And it, I think something and else... it's
1: inspiring really... to do this for ourselves, you know? Totally,
2: you yeah. You know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I'm sure you're all familiar mm-hmm. with her. Um, one of her last books that she wrote was called, you know, Living Until We Die. And, you know, she spoke about that. And it was so, it's so inspiring in hospice because we often would help people live out their last wishes, you know, the things they wanted to do, like go fishing. And here they were, they could barely walk, and we'd somehow help them, their family, get them on a fishing boat, and here was this person fishing because that's what they dreamed. And um, I think this movie, this documentary held a lot of that too, you know, the the fantasies of um, what we really want and mm-hmm. li- making it happen. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. Great choices. These films were all amazing and I wanted to ask you both actually a couple questions. Um so how do you both feel that people can or do you feel that folks can use watching films as therapy? Is there a means because for me personally, I feel like I do like I mean I I talk to a therapist too, but like I'm someone who really connects to film and I'm just wondering if if you guys think that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's sort of, that's my game plan in life. Um, I, I, I experience so much catharsis when I watch a good film. Um, And, and I crave that catharsis. Um, Like when I'm at a film festival and I'm watching three movies in a day, I'm a wreck at the end, but I'm, I'm, I'm so full. I'm so full of a feeling and it it and i mean i started writing about film as a way to write about my my life it was sort of like the the lens that helped me to process um what i was going through because it's it's a way of of seeing your own life reflected and seeing the universality of of everything that we go through and that's what i think good film can do and um and I still everything I write, even though it's not as explicit anymore, um, it's totally about me. Like it's totally, I mean, everything we do is it comes from us. So it's like it everything, everything I write is is really imbued with my own emotion, and it, it is totally therapeutic. So I think that whether you're writing about your life or whether you're just seeing your experiences reflected on screen, it's it's one of the best forms of therapy that there is.
3: Yeah, it's like, it's interesting because, you know, talk therapy is very much like inward looking, right? We're like very much concentrating on our own situation and our own our life. Story. And our own story. Our own story. And so I think like the power of, of uh, the therapeutic power of film is getting the universal perspective. I think it gives a lot of interesting perspective into how other people process. Exactly.
2: And I'll tell you how things. I use it. Since you asked, um, I love metaphors and I feel like it's my way to communicate with people. And whether it's a Rumi, a quote from Rumi from the 12th century, or whether it's a specific scene in a movie, maybe just a moment in a movie, And I often use moments, and I think my clients must think I'm a little crazy, but I'm telling about these moments of a movie as a way to talk about life and their life and what they're going through, um, because it's all about our stories.
3: Right, and it's like, and it's also, I think that grief can feel very lonely and alienating and scary, and you can think, "Wow, I'm doing something that's so quote unquote weird right now." You know, I can't believe I'm doing this. What's wrong with me? Like, I, Bobby and I often talk about the movie A Ghost Story. And when she, have you seen a ghost story?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And when she's eating the pie,
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, Rooney Mara, right. When she's yeah. eating the pie. And For like, 12 minutes, right. Such an interesting, I mean, beautiful scene, amazing scene about food and grief, obviously, but also just like something like that's so impactful and being like, Oh, other people do. Someone else is eating a whole pie until they throw up because they're so fucked up, exactly, you know, like, exactly, it's okay. exactly. like it's okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, that's a great, that's a great moment. Yeah, it really is. Mm -hmm. This was a great conversation. I loved it. it. so
3: wonderful. So fun.
1: Could could we possibly do this again sometime,
2: maybe in a couple of months or something? Because it's wonderful to to do this together. Isn't that fun?
1: I I mean, talking about film is my favorite thing and... and, Mm. you guys are so great to to talk to. And thanks for watching the films and appreciating them so much and having so much to say. Great. Of course.
3: Yeah, if yeah. It, it, it really so
1: helped
2: fun. me get through this week, I'll tell you. Oh, I watched, good. We watched all three films this week, and it was totally. a perfect way to deal with this ridiculous week. Same. <laughs> right? You know, it's funny. I
3: started watching Still Walking... Uh, at the beginning of election night, maybe at, like, five. And I'm like, I'll be done with this at seven. And then I'll, like, get into watching the election. And I, like started drinking i mean i'm not a huge drinker anymore but on election night i made mean, an exception to try to kill myself with <laughs> alcohol i guess um but anyway no i'm just kidding but i did drink a bunch of wine but anyway so by the time like i'm halfway through this movie i'm like oh my gosh i've drank a half a bottle of wine already because i'm so stressed anticipating watching the election i know
1: but, yeah I know. thanks well, Thanks. plenty more plenty more where this where these came from. Amazing. So. We would
3: love to have you on again, for sure. A hundred percent. It'd be great as well. Time. Yeah. Thank you so much. And we hope that you, uh, ha- uh, let's just see what happens with the rest of this wacky day. But yeah, thanks yeah. for joining us, Suzanne. And we'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Let's, thanks, keep, let's keep,
2: ta- let's keep telling stories and watching stories and listening to stories. And that's how we share our humanity. Yeah.
3: That awesome. is Okay, we'll talk to you later. All right, bye. Bye. Bye.
0: All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of Food Radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make a contribution, check out the latest additions to our lineup. While you're there, you can see all of our series at
3: heritageradionetwork.org/newshow. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you for our freshest content. Subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. network.org connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer and more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.